Hi everyone and welcome to the very first episode of Knowing Your Foods. My name is Megan Nichol and I'm so excited to finally have this first episode out with such an amazing guest. Um, if you guys didn't know, this is for my senior project. I'm a senior at Michigan State and I decided to start this because I really wanted to help people with nutrition education if they were maybe lacking in it or maybe they wanted to know some more about nutrition, but they didn't really know where to start. So this is what I'm doing. And today on this episode, I have a very special guest, Annie Buffington, who works at Michigan State. She is the nutrition counseling coordinator and she offers her services to Michigan State students and faculty. So if you are a student faculty at Michigan State listening and um, maybe you want some more information on nutrition, feel free to reach out to her and kind of get a hold of her, talk to her, do what you need to do. Um, but yeah, I really hope you guys enjoy this. Today we kind of talked about eating competence and again, nutrition education. I even included some of the questions that you guys asked in the survey that I sent out earlier. So if maybe you had a question on there, I'm hoping that it got asked uh, or answered, sorry. Um, and well, asked and answered. <laughs> and so if you didn't, I am planning on making some more episodes with a couple other people. So hopefully at that time, your question will get answered or maybe you'll get the information that you're, you're looking for. Um, but yeah, so without further ado, let's get started into this first episode. Um, I hope you guys enjoy it. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, so I guess we can just start with um, if you kind of want to introduce yourself, uh, kind of like what you do, like what you offer, um, who you help, that kind of stuff. Sure. So, um, so my name is Annie Buffington, and I work as a registered dietitian and am also the nutrition program coordinator in the health promotion department at MSU. And the health promotion department is a part of student health and wellness. And the work that I do um, is focused within specific specialties. Um, as the nutrition program coordinator, I get to meet with students individually for individual nutrition counseling. And I also get to do programs, presentations, guest lectures to try and provide more nutrition education to um, a broader group of students. And so we have the nourish nutrition program within health promotion and the the primary services we provide is that individual nutrition counseling which is available for any msu student and then we have different programs um, we have the pure body project that's more focused on body image exploring those things we have um, student groups that i help advise like spartans empower body acceptance who they typically run programs during weight stigma awareness week or eating disorder awareness week. And so we are providing um, just again, education resources for students along with um, support, professional support for anyone who is curious to learn a little bit more about their relationship with food or may have any medical condition or diagnoses or um, any problematic eating patterns. 
Awesome. And I know that you kind of have like a really vast background in nutrition, like schooling wise and whatnot. And so I just like, I was curious on how you kind of got to where you are right now. Yeah. So I started my career working at a residential treatment program for eating disorders. So I went to Michigan State. I got my undergrad in dietetics and specialized in health promotion. And right after that, I got a job at a residential treatment center. And I honestly, at the time, I, I don't think I had expected that I would make that the focus of my career at the time. Um, I, I think I had a lot to learn and I just found that I really enjoyed working with that specific target population. Um, and I learned so much from the, the, the clients that I worked with early on. And I sometimes think I learned much more from them than they did from me because I was just, and you know, at that point I was, that was where I was first exposed to this non-diet approach to eating and recognizing how important it is to build and foster a positive relationship with food and how that is going to support long-term health. And so that was sort of my first experience right out of school. And then I think with just how that's kind of grown, um, I, I just have developed these different areas of expertise within the field. And so certainly I would consider being a certified eating disorder registered dietitian as one of those areas of specialty and um, being able to work within that population has really been um, very rewarding work in, in the time that I've been doing that. And then also I decided that I wanted to become board certified as a specialist in sports dietetics. Um, I think sometimes just in terms of um, working with athletes and those who do have some symptoms of disordered eating and eating disorders, but even just beyond that, really allowing and, and supporting people in performance nutrition. And that was really something interesting to me. So that was uh, an area that I found really interesting and, and wanted to do a little bit more research on and that type of thing. So that, that sort of happened in terms of working with that population. And then in my um, current job at MSU, when I went back to grad school, you know, being working in health promotion, which I kind of knew from the beginning I wanted to do, it was really more about honing my skills in public health and um, went back to school to get uh, my master's in health communication because it's so important that we are able to communicate the information we have so that individuals can learn and decide for themselves if it's going to be helpful to them. So um, health communication became kind of another area. And then finally, I think what we're going to be talking a lot about today, just my work with this eating competence model, the Satter eating competence model, and being exposed to uh, Ellen Satter's work early in my career and just using these models as a framework for approaching nutrition education for so many years has been really helpful in every area I work in. So this model really has helped me in my work with individuals with eating disorders in approaching sports nutrition, in health communication and the messages and really trying to frame that in a certain way. Yeah. I think it's actually kind of funny that you say like communication too. And it's so important because I remember when I switched into nutritional sciences, they 
had me taking a communications class and I was honestly kind of confused at first, but now after taking so many classes, I actually realized, oh, that's kind of why they made me take this because <laughs> it's so yes. important to implement that type of communication, especially with like patient physician interactions or like patient provider interactions, anything like that. So yeah, I, I found that very interesting. <laughs> well, and, and think about it. Um, I mean, any, think about all the messages we hear about nutrition. Yeah. There are, there's just so many messages. And I think that's what I've learned in the work I do now is, is realizing that when you're, when you're creating those messages, if they, I mean, really there's so many that are harmful, right? How can we not do any more harm and how can we actually help people and support them in understanding these concepts without just making them feel bad, which I think a lot of the, unfortunately, a lot of the messages around food and eating and nutrition just tend to make people feel bad. And I think that's where this approach is so different. So um, I think that's a great point is there's just so many things out there. That's why I'm so glad you're doing this, you know, and having a format for people to learn, because hopefully we can counter some of those harmful messages and help people really understand what they can do to take care of themselves. Exactly. Yeah. So speaking of the model that you were talking about, um, do you kind of want to give an overview, kind of an introduction to eating competence and that kind of model that you studied for a while? Yes. So the, the model is called the Satter Eating Competence Model, and it is named after a woman who developed it. Her name is Ellen Satter. She is a dietitian. She's also a trained um, family therapist. And the model that she created was developed because of her work as a dietitian and family therapist, as she was assessing how people feel, think, and behave with respect to managing their food and eating. And she started to realize certain themes emerging in her work that helped to develop this model. And how I try to explain it, and I often will say that food is a need, eating is a skill. Yes. And so if you think about any other skill that you've ever learned, okay, so maybe you've learned how to swim, or maybe you learned how to play an instrument at some point, or maybe you know how to crochet, just whatever crafty thing you do. Um, if there's a skill, it takes time to practice that skill to the point where you feel like you've mastered that skill and you feel confident in your ability to do that skill. And what I love about this eating competence model is that it is a model that provides a framework for learning the skills related to food and eating um, and helps equip individuals with those skills and strategies to be able to experience a positive relationship with food and to be able to trust the body or trust their body to eat in a way that is right for them. So that's probably the best kind of in a nutshell, the best way I can explain the model is that we sort of look at these different areas and help equip people with the skills and strategies to, to build that positive relationship with food. Oh, perfect. And I know that um, kind of like from the slides that uh, you presented in my class, like there were a, a couple of factors that really go into this model. Um, do you think you could kind of go over those factors? 
Yes. So the the different areas, um, there are these different do domains that exist within the model. And so um, with the Satter Eating Competence Model, it assesses eating attitudes and behaviors in four key areas. So one of those areas is eating attitudes. And that is basically how people feel about their eating. So individuals who are eating competent tend to be more relaxed, more positive about their eating, they enjoy eating and they don't feel bad or guilty about it. And so this area is really focused on assessing and understanding and maybe reframing the thoughts we have about food to, in our body to be more trusting, to be more comfortable with our enjoyment of all foods. The one, another area is um, uh, food acceptance. And that is where we're assessing how people approach food selection and competent eaters tend to eat a wider variety of foods and are open to trying new foods and learning to like new foods. And so um, we're kind of checking in with food preferences too, because, you know, a competent eater can make do with foods that maybe are not preferred, but it's what's available in the moment. So those types of things and being able to be flexible with that. And so with food acceptance, um, so often I think individuals start categorizing their foods as, you know, good or bad, healthy, unhealthy, and um, may restrict foods and, you know, only eat others. And this area really recognizes the importance of nutritional adequacy mm -hmm. um, and also just being flexible in our ability to learn to like new foods and getting ultimately a greater variety of foods is going to help us with nutritional adequacy. So instead of going at it from like a good food and bad food list, we're trying to help individuals increase their variety and, and um, openness to learning to like new foods. And that's going to help with that piece. Another area, the third area is um, internal regulation. And that is um, just reaffirming that our body has very powerful biopsychosocial drives, physiological drives to regulate eating. And so achieving eating competence in this area involves connecting with the body's internal regulators of hunger, appetite, and satiety. And those internal regulators are what help to determine when, what, and how much to eat. And so our ability to trust those signals and rely on the internal regulators rather, rather than external regulators around eating, which are more like portion control, food rules, um, that type of thing is really important in this area. And competent eaters tune in, they tend to pay attention to their eating and they know when they're hungry, um, they trust themselves to eat enough and they they stop eating when they're truly satisfied, not, not just kind of cut off you know, because they think they should. And then finally, the fourth area is called contextual skills. And this is really just a fancy term for learning all of those skills that we need in order to be reliable about feeding ourselves. So typically these include things like establishing regular meal and snack routines, prioritizing eating, making time or making a plan for feeding yourself, and um, all those other things like grocery shopping, cooking skills, managing a food budget, all of that goes into this category. So we're trying to build individual skills around that as well. So those are the four areas. And, and when you look at the 
diagram for this model, all of these little circles overlap in the center. And it's really that overlap that somebody would be achieving eating competence. And it's, it's sort of within that, that, that positive relationship with food emerges. Yeah. I, I remember like hearing about all of these and I, I never really thought about everything that kind of goes into being a competent eater. Cause I mean, sometimes you hear, uh, eating competence and you think of it as, I mean, I know we were talking about this, like intuitive eating, and that's what a lot of like, um, a lot of people popularize intuitive eating, but I think that there, I think that eating competence can be a better definition because it's almost like more realistic because you are able to kind of define it with all of those factors instead of just, Oh, intuitive eating, listen to your body. So yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, I, I will say, um, you know, intuitive eating does have, it, it's just, a, it's a different model, right? So, so mm -hmm. eating competence and intuitive eating are two separate frameworks for, uh, but they're, they're both kind of after the same thing, which is internally regulating food intake. And um, the, the difference really being, and I, I do think the eating competence model, the reason why I, I gravitated towards that is I do think it's, it's, better defined in those, in that sense. Um, we have, you know, these four key areas, intuitive eating has 10 principles mm -hmm. and some people really connect with those and they really, you know, make sense to them and they kind of go through that. And then I think where we diverge a little bit is the eating competence model is very established in the sense of the, the, um, necessity of structure around food and eating and structure not being in a rigid way, but essentially just that idea of prioritizing regular meals, regular reliable meals and snacks is a really important part of the model. Whereas intuitive eating is a little bit more on demand eating. And the challenge with that is we have to sort of function within a schedule, most of us. Um, and sometimes if we don't, then we kind of settle into our own natural schedule. But if we are having a function within that, it is important to, it's, it's going to be hard to eat on demand sometimes. Um, and I know when I've talked to Ellen Satter about this, um, you know, it's really like anybody over the age of two really does need to establish structure with eating um, because it really is not always that beneficial to just eat on demand all the time and have food on your mind like that. Yeah. So that, that diverges a little bit. And then I think um, a bit in the crossover on emotional eating is a little different in terms of how, the, how these two mm -hmm. different approaches uh, go about teaching people about that. So those are two ways that diverges, but I will say there is, there is some crossover with how we approach this. And if somebody kind of learns things through intuitive eating and then sort of learns kind of how to be a competent eater that way. Um, I don't think it's necessarily right or wrong. It's just, again, trying to function within a certain uh, framework can be really helpful. And what I like about eating competence is that it provides all the entire thing so that you can really dig into each of those factors and mm -hmm. key areas to, to assess for yourself how you're doing in that. And it's sometimes intuitive eating can have a, a lengthy process with that. Yeah. All right. Well, I think now that we kind of have like a good, like established um, definition of eating competence and kind of what that entails, uh, I think I'm going to go into some of the questions that I got from the survey. Um, so 
the one that one actually this one stood out a lot to me the first question um was how to eat healthy without crossing a line into like diet obsession or disordered eating restricting food or just kind of general unhappiness and um like even the diet cycle so i mean how would you kind of go about answering that <laughs> i mean thinking about this question just just all that's attached to it you know i mean <laughs> I mean, thinking about that, like what people think of when they think about eating quote unquote healthy, mm -hmm. they think about obsessing over a diet, disordered eating, restricting food, like being unhappy, like, wow. Right. I mean, I think that just says so much. So I just wanted to point that out. And I, I think one of the things that I try to really reframe for people is that it isn't about being a healthy eater. We have to really get that clear. So, and people may listening to this are probably very surprised that I just said that. And <laughs> I, I say that because I don't think the end result is about being a healthy eater. Everything we're doing, especially to help support students here at MSU is helping individuals achieve eating competence to become a competent eater because a competent eater is someone who is positive, flexible with eating enough and regular and reliable about feeding themselves. Mm -hmm. And we know that achieving eating competence has positive health outcomes. So we are really focused on that. And so if we can reframe that, you know, in terms of um, how we think about it, it might, it might help. And I also think as we go about um, wanting to take better care of ourselves with food, as we mentioned before, there's so many different avenues to do that and so many different things that influence our eating and telling us basically what and how much and when to eat. And so when we're trying to decide that for ourselves, I think oftentimes what happens is we get into the diet culture that we live in and that can really be detrimental and be more harmful to us. And I think probably that's why all of these things are attached to the idea of eating healthy is because of the diet culture we live in. And so um, to just sort of dig a little bit deeper and go into that, um, I think it's important to explain the diet cycle because maybe that will help give us a little bit of a foundation to work from even with maybe some other questions. So if people mm -hmm. understand that if we're talking about a, a, a diet cycle, what typically happens is somebody makes the decision to start a diet or change their eating in some way. And that can happen for a variety of different reasons. One of the primary predictors of somebody starting a diet or changing their eating in some way is body dissatisfaction. That's one of the primary predictors of it. It's not the only one. But um, oftentimes it has to do with some level of body dissatisfaction. And usually what a diet involves is some sort of restriction. So that could be restricting total calories. Um, it could be restricting certain food groups or macronutrients. It could be restricting categories of foods. And so if we have restriction, the problem with restriction is that we cannot expect ourselves to go without our favorite foods forever. And, and particularly, we can't expect our body to go without essential nutrients forever. Mm -hmm. So the longer restriction goes on, our body and brain actually start to experience deprivation. So this restriction leads to a state of deprivation. And when our body and brain become deprived, they start sending out 
alarms and different hormones and different appetite um, uh, things that regulate our appetite out into our body and into our cells to alert our cells that the energy is running low or we are not getting any of these foods that we actually prefer anymore. And at that point in time, the reaction is to increase thoughts and motivations to eat. And so typically that occurs through an increase in cravings for food. Sometimes people become extremely preoccupied with food. They're thinking about food all the time. They are menus online. They're always thinking about the next time they're able to eat and food is just on our mind. And and to th you know, when you think about it, it's really a, a brilliant mechanism because increasing cravings and preoccupation with food is, is, again, trying to motivate us to eat. And so if our body's in a deprived state, that is kind of the, the mechanism that's going to help correct that. So we don't see it like that, but that's our body's really protecting us in that way. And at a certain point in time, after you've been kind of thinking about food, craving food, preoccupied with it, we, we tend to get into the um, same room as food again, or these foods that we may have been avoiding, or we have the option to eat them. And at this point in time is where somebody may feel like they give into those cravings. And mm -hmm. so let's say somebody has been, you know, restricting carbohydrates and suddenly they have a dessert or a sweet or something like that. And when they give into that, sometimes what occurs because you've been restraining or restricting this food, it's very hard to manage that food in a normal, regular way. So the experience people tend to have is that they tend to overconsume. They feel like they may have overeaten or they feel like they binged on that food. And after something like that happens, people just feel so bad. They feel guilty. Um, I oftentimes will hear people, they just feel so ashamed, they're embarrassed, and they tend to blame themselves that they, they just didn't have enough willpower to avoid that food or, or not eat too much of it or whatever they're feeling bad about. And, you know, the thing about it is that it doesn't really matter how much willpower somebody has, it's not going to stop this neurophysiological reaction to being restricted or underfed. Yeah. So, so that's sort of the cycle it goes through. And I think a lot of times what happens is when, when people are feeling so bad and negative, they kind of internalize those negative feelings that again, they couldn't, they didn't have enough self-control or willpower, and they already are anticipating starting the next diet or like, okay, today, you know, forget about today, but tomorrow is a new day. And I'm going to start this all over again. And this cycle just spirals out of control for a lot of people. They, they kind of find themselves stuck in this mm -hmm. cycle. Yeah. And I kind of wanted to go back to what you were talking about at the beginning of the cycle and how a lot of people start it because they feel the need to lose weight or they do have maybe bad body image. And um, I was just curious what kind of you tell people who only want to eat to lose weight? Yeah. Um, well, <laughs> I, no, I, question. <laughs> well, I think it's a great question. It's a great question. I think, um, it really, so when I, when I'm in sessions with individuals, you know, we're building rapport, mm -hmm. we're building rapport and, you know, I'm listening. I, I think I want to just learn more. Like that's actually where my first inclination goes to is I, I would want to learn more as to why. 
I would be asking that question of like, why is this, why, why is this something that you really feel like you're stuck on, that this is the primary focus because, and, you know, and I would listen to them and I think it's okay to listen to people. It's not, you know, somebody's not wrong for wanting to, I mean, my goodness, this is the culture we live in. So many people are looking to lose weight, do it in a way that they think is healthy or maybe doing it in a way that they know is not healthy, but it's going to happen really quickly. And, you know, all of these different things and we're, we're influenced by so much. And so, um, so I can't fault them for that. I think it's, it's oftentimes very much ingrained and it's sometimes it's even ingrained deeper than that into our family culture and like the messages we received growing up about our, our weight or our body image and, and, um, generations of people sort of telling us things about our weight. So it doesn't come from nowhere. Okay. Is my point. And I think when somebody is really, really focused on weight, I, so the, the sadder eating competence model is a weight inclusive or a weight neutral framework. Mm-hmm. So I, the way that I sort of do all of my nutrition counseling and, and education is based on a weight neutral approach. And sometimes you hear it called health at every size that, um, that term or that, um, that name is trademarked by the association for size diversity and health. And it, what it does is it recognizes that normal human bodies come in a wide range of weights and sizes. So we first have to promote a norm of diversity, which, which we really don't hear about, right. In, in terms of the diet culture we're, we're seeped in the, the thing about a weight neutral framework though, is that we know it's really, I mean, this is well known that weight is not a good measure or a predictor of health. So a weight centered approach, right? If all we're focused on is weight, that actually has the potential to disrupt eating patterns and cause more harmful and adverse physical and psychological and maybe even emotional effects, which include things like weight cycling, increased body dissatisfaction, weight-based stigma, and an increase for eating disorder behavior. So oftentimes when we're putting weight at the center or weight loss at the center, we are, if that's where we're measuring success, we actually may be setting ourselves up to be in a position where we're harming our bodies or we're um, not supporting our health in several different ways. So I would invite those individuals, and there may be several listening to this right now, who are, are very much focused on weight. And I would just invite them to think about a different approach, maybe even a better way to approach food and eating particularly, but coming at it from a weight neutral standpoint, recognizing this norm of diversity, and also realizing that if we put health at the center, we are saying that every individual is capable of achieving health and well-being independent of their weight status. Yeah. And that's really what we're after is we want to help individuals have the capacity to take good care of themselves, no matter what their weight is, because we know that the evidence we have, we have a certain predisposition to a certain weight and people may be higher or lower than that, depending on where they're at in this journey. But um, we want to help individuals have sustainable self-care behaviors that's going to enhance their health and not only support individual 
well-being, but also supports community well-being. Mm -hmm. So that's really what we're after. And I think it's a really good point to make that if somebody comes in and they're just, they just want to eat in a way to lose weight, I would really have to explore that with them to know, number one, how has that been working for you? Because most people, if, if they've been through that diet cycle, and I've even had one of the things I will sometimes encourage people to do is now if they're, um, if they have an active eating disorder or they are, uh, they, there's a lot of triggers around their weight. I may not do this with them, but somebody who's like dieted a lot. And, um, I may even have them graph their weight over time just to show like, how has this been helping you? How is worrying about your weight, helping your weight? Yeah. And most of the time they, they can say pretty quickly, it's not. So I guess I just think, okay, then instead of doing that again, we know that that's not helping or it's not effective or it's actually made things worse. So what if we just try something new, right? You can always go back to this. Like Mm -hmm. really, like if you decide, like as an adult, people can decide, you know, what to do, but, and they can make choices and decisions. But I, I guess I would just say, why not try something that does seem maybe radically different and me be a little uh, outside of your comfort zone because it's unfamiliar. But what if it had the potential to not only help your, um, your eating improve, right? Your eating behaviors and attitudes improve, but really help support your health long-term and in the process, learn to set your weight aside and work with your body and not against it and see what happens. And if, again, nothing, no benefits come from that. We can talk about that, but instead of making weight or weight loss, a primary goal, because we don't have any good evidence to show that that's safe or effective. Why don't we come at it from a different place and see how you respond? And some people are willing to go there and some people are willing to try it. And, um, I've actually had people in tears in my office, just when, when they, when they really realize that weight is not going to be the focus, it is such a emotional thing because for their entire lives or for so long, that's all they've been told is like, you got to do something about this. Or they felt like their body has been wrong their entire life. And I might be the first person telling them like, there's nothing wrong with your body. There's everything wrong with what people are telling you about your body. So let's, let's start from a place of just, you know, respecting its needs and learning to eat in a way that's going to support that. I absolutely loved everything that you just said. I think that that was the perfect way to sum it up too. And I, I mean, like, I think it is so prevalent for people to look at their body shape and size too, because of social media and everything that they see out there. So they compare themselves to, um, people that maybe like, maybe that take supplements or maybe they have a different lifestyle or, Um, And I know a lot of people do this, like they see one person do have a diet and that diet works specifically for that person. Um, So there, so this other person is saying, oh, if it worked for them, it must work for me. Like I have to like, because I want to look like that. So, I mean, I, I, I love that you say you have to take it from like an individual standpoint and really listen to your body in that sense and kind of go about it that way. Yeah. And you no, I think you bring up a really good point because um, I heard a quote once. I actually don't know the person who originally said this quote. I think it's pretty well known though. So um, people could look it up, but 
that comparison is the thief of joy. It's so true. (laughs) It's so true. And I think as soon as we start to make those comparisons, it is just, it starts to suck the joy away or we feel inadequate because we're making these comparisons, right? And it's sort of this thing that we do um, as humans, we tend to compare and yet we, we know that it's not to our benefit. And I also think what you shared, um, you know, we really have to sort of also be aware and recognize like, what does it mean for a diet to quote unquote work? Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we're seeing something quote unquote work for somebody, if that is around, let's say weight loss, right? Like if somebody is doing something and they're losing weight and that's something we would like to do, um, what we have to be really careful of is when we look at the research around dieting, yes, people lose weight on diets. If you are in a state of restriction or deprived of energy, your body may lose weight. Okay. It's not guaranteed, but it's possible that it, you can lose weight. But the statistic we have around dieting is that 95%, or I think they say maybe 88 to like 95% of people who lose weight on a diet are going to regain that weight back, all of their weight back in one to five years. So that's majority. I mean, 95%. I mean, that's, that's huge, right? Like that's, I mean, if, if there was a elective, totally optional surgery that had a 95% failure rate, I don't know many people that would be signing up to get that surgery (laughs) or, or do, you know, but this is a billion dollar industry we're talking about with dieting. And so I think the other thing we have to be really careful of is when we are seeing those things happen, or we're thinking somebody's following something and we're thinking it's working, unfortunately, like that's not the end of the story. And we really don't know, right. More about what they're doing. Um, or if it's really effective. Um, and if, again, you're noticing that I would just say, you know, use a lot of caution and discernment in what you're seeing, because we, we can't really define it as working. (laughs) Um, if, if it's just about weight loss, it's not the end of the story. So, um, and oftentimes that's going to come back and not only with that weight regain, but we find that two thirds of individuals in that 95% are going to regain more weight than where they started, which many people have experienced that too. So we know what the research actually tells us is that dieting is a better predictor of weight gain than it is of weight loss, which surprises so many people. (laughs) And I think it's just good to get that out there because it is so compelling when we see this happening in front of our eyes, or, you know, we may know somebody in that 5% that has kept weight off, you know, after a certain period of time. And so I just think it's important to think about and assess, like, what does it really mean for a diet to work? And how can we really assess that in the moment? We really can't because it's not the end of the story. Yeah. Um, I actually like kind of going off that a little bit. One of the questions that um, I got was, separating like real evidence-based nutrition. So maybe something that you can find a scholarly article for or um, whatnot, kind of separating that from what you see on social media or things that you see on TV. Like how would you, um, how would you separate that? Or kind of what tips would you give to people that want to seek out nutrition that may be like um, more, I hate to say scholarly, but more like backed up by science, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think, um, so what I would say is that it really, to me, it starts with eating competence. Mm -hmm. And if somebody is a competent eater and somebody who's a competent eater 
decides that maybe, and maybe they've been recently diagnosed with a medical condition, or maybe they have a certain, I don't know, consideration they want to make with their eating. Um, we, we consider that within the eating competence model, there's a framework, this hierarchy of foods. And when you've been taking care of your food needs, okay, and you've achieved this eating competence, there is a point where you can make decisions about the food that you are eating um, and doing it in a way that may to, to maybe achieve a certain health outcome or to manage a certain medical condition that you have or to um, prolong life or whatever it may be. And at that point in time, um, somebody may be ready to do that in a way that's not going to set off this whole other, uh, all these other concerns or uh, um, what do I want to say, like anxieties about food. Mm -hmm. And so I think there, you can, you know, work with individuals in, you know, achieving eating competence, or maybe somebody's listening who they already do a good job of taking care of themselves with food. And they, they kind of have mastered these skills in these different areas and they want to experiment with some of these things. Then I think that's, you know, totally fine to do. I would say that the, the challenge with nutrition research is that it's very hard to isolate a particular food and say for sure, this is beneficial or like this is harmful because we typically are not only eating one food, right? <laughs> because if we are, we aren't getting variety and we aren't meeting our needs. So we it, to isolate that and to say this causes this, very, very difficult to do in, in nutrition science. Um, mm -hmm. But we do have some things that are better supported by the research or there's more evidence for. And so if we lean on that, I do think it's just basically trying to cut through some of that noise. Mm -hmm. And I also think it's really individualized. It's, it's making sure that you are choosing to eat in a way that again, is working with your body and feeling, you know, positive and not being so wary and concerned even about like the health components of food that we miss out on enjoyable food or that we think, you know, we're, um, we kind of establish more food rules with that. So I think that the main takeaway for me is like within this framework, what's great is that it's flexible. Mm -hmm. It's that, you know, I, I may eat a certain way day to day and then, Hey, if I'm on a road trip or I, I on an airplane and I didn't plan well, I'm like, I'm not, I'm not just thinking that that's going to be the way I'm going to eat forever. Right. Like I have yeah. to make you, I have to find different ways of feeding myself. So I think there's just ways that we may um, be able to help support you know, some of those adjustments and changes, but I would, and I usually have people start with, um, kind of the, the attitude around the Saturday eating competence model is whenever you're making changes to your eating, or you want to explore some changes to your eating, if you've already established, right. These food needs is adding on instead of taking away. So the, the approach being, you know, increasing or adding more variety or adding food to your meals and snacks rather than feeling like you're taking things away or depriving yourself of the things. So, um, kind of with that, uh, you, when somebody kind of starts the, um, like eating, like the journey into eating competence and whatnot, um, along with kind of like introducing new foods and making sure that you have variety, are there any other kind of like sustainable, like habits that you kind of maybe tell them to incorporate or maybe help with like actually keeping going with the eating competence model? Yes. I, I feel like the starting point always 
is establishing structure, mm -hmm. is, is thinking about how are you doing in eating regular, reliable meals and snacks each day? Yeah. Are you prioritizing eating or is eating an afterthought or are you just grabbing food as you go? Or, you know, what, like basically the question would be, how are you eating? Mm -hmm. And, and again, I think this surprises a lot of people because I don't start with food selection. When we're talking about achieving eating competence, we don't start with talking about food selection because our, the, the behavior, the eating behavior, how we are eating oftentimes greatly influences our food selection. So if we can start with, okay, how are you eating? Are you just, you know, going about your day with no plan? Are you, are you, do, do you kind of sit down and have regular meals? What, what does that look like? And so establishing structure, which basically is again, just a framework for eating mm -hmm. that you, you can be reassured that you are going to have regular opportunities during the day to take care of that food need, because we cannot ignore food as a need. We can't pretend it doesn't exist. We can't go without it. And so I always, I always try to put it in perspective for people when we talk about other needs. And it's, if you're, you know, so many people, especially students, they will be eating maybe one or two meals a day or something, you know, just like really not like so busy, not really having time to eat. And I think, you know, if you were doing that with your sleep, right? So like, if you were just, if you just decided you were just gonna sleep an hour a night and after a few days, right? That would start to affect you mm -hmm. in some capacity. And you may not be feeling at your best. You may feel tired all the time. You may start hallucinating at a certain point. I mean, this is like really stuff that is, is detrimental because your body needs enough and adequate sleep. And when you, if you've been, you know, restricting your sleep and you go, let's say you pull an all nighter and then you go to sleep, um, it's unlikely you're just going to sleep for like five or six hours naturally. Like you're going to want to sleep longer to make up for that deprivation. So food and eating is very similar. So if we know that it's a need, we have to really recognize and accept that I have to see to it that I meet this need every day. And once that occurs, I think that's where we can start experimenting with the food selection and say, okay, I usually just have people start with once they have established regular meal and snack opportunities, um, I will usually just have them start with like, what do you enjoy? Like just, you know, kind of like the juice has to be worth the squeeze. Like, like let's look forward to meals because we're a lot less likely to take care of ourselves with food if we're dreading the thing we're going to eat next. Right. So what do you enjoy? And then starting with that, I think then people start to experiment and decide like what works for them, what doesn't, um, what foods hold them over and last a little bit longer than others. And that's the great part of the work that I do is that I don't tell people what and how much to eat when they're learning eating competence. And yet they're recognizing how much is enough. They're recognizing their hunger signals. They're starting to recognize their appetite, their drive for variety. And without being told what and how much to eat, competent eaters tend to do better nutritionally. So it's pretty fascinating that the, again, the approach we've been using for so long, telling people what to eat, when to eat, how much, it's really backfiring. And if we just, instead of trying to control everything, right, if we just trust individuals to learn and grow and move themselves along, they do much better 
and it's also sustainable mm-hmm. because it's they're learning skills along the way to keep doing that thing and I think at that point people notice the benefits I mean they notice they maybe have more energy or that food isn't on their mind all the time anymore. They can think about other things or they're recognizing that their condition is improving, whatever it may be. And that's the benefit that is maybe helping them, hey, like, let me keep up with this and and continue this. And so I think there's real, there's real positive aspects of this that are well-documented that um, can be very beneficial. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I think it's kind of funny, like, because obviously like I'm a nutrition major, a lot of my family and like friends are like, Megan, like, can you please just make a food plan for me or create something for me? And I'm like, well, I'm not certified to do something, but I can try and help. So like usually the way that I, um, I mean, even after watching your presentation and whatnot, I kind of went about it in a way that's like, I can't tell you what to eat. It's not my job. Like you have to eat what you want to eat. So I remember like I started by making an Excel sheet because I love Excel sheets, Um, (laughs) but I made a sheet and it listed all their favorite foods. And I said, okay, so here's what you can maybe combine to make some good meals, like to get maybe macro micronutrients in, but I'm just like, I'm thinking about this and it's just so strange to have somebody tell you what to eat. If you really think about it. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a really good point. Um, especially because we're, we're all born knowing how to eat. Yeah. Like you know, I mean, we have this sort of understanding from the, from the moment we're born. Um, and it's, it's just, again, I think that's why, you know, um, infants, babies, children are such great examples of competent eaters because Mm -hmm. they, you know, we're not born with, um, you know, a, a calorie tracker on our wrist and yet we do a great job of regulating and growing and, you know, getting enough. And I think, um, And that's, again, presuming that the food environment is enough for that, for that uh, individual. I think the, the challenge becomes as we get older, there's just so much static, so much noise that, that takes, that that really just damages the trust in our body because everything we're being told is making us doubt trusting our body and trusting ourselves around eating. And so that's, I think, the the shift that tends to occur. And, and you're right, I think, along with that, um, when you were talking about, you know, what else, what are the like tips and things, I think once you establish this regular, reliable eating pattern, um, you know, getting into the meal habit, like really thinking about how to put together a meal, like what you're saying, um, with foods you enjoy and things you like, is a huge, important skill to learn. Mm-hmm. And I think often that does require, you know, sometimes it's just taking what people are eating currently and it's just arranging it so that like it's happening at a meal time. Cause sometimes people just sort of graze throughout the day or they don't have much order to their eating. So sometimes it's just taking what they're already eating and putting it together at one time. Um, sometimes it's, you know, planning and preparing a little bit. Maybe it's the, the morning of, or the day before assessing what you have, taking an inventory of that and knowing what you can put together but we do, we tend to put together foods that are pretty satisfying Mm -hmm. and we tend to put together different food groups. So we don't, you know, it's just exploring that. And when we find maybe something's missing, that's, what's great about adding on Mm -hmm. and filling in the gaps rather than feeling like I have to totally revamp and make everything from scratch or like (laughs) stop eating this or that. It's like, actually, no, you can just, it's, it's both. And right. Like we don't, it's not either, or it's just, let's bring it both together so we can establish what's going to work for you. And 
during different seasons of our life, that looks different, right? I mean, it's just, yeah, kind of rolling with that a little bit. Yeah. So those are all the questions that I had, but I just kind of wanted to open the floor and see if maybe there's something that you wanted to discuss a little bit more, um, wanted to get out there for people, um, any topics that you wanted to go over or felt like you wanted to circle back to. I think, I mean, a lot of those questions really got to several of the things that I get asked quite a bit. And I think this is a good group of questions to, to really get at what people are curious about. And I would just say that it's, it's maybe keeping a bit of an open mind about what's working, really working for you mm -hmm. and what's not, and being honest with yourself about what's harmful and what's helpful, what's supportive, what's not supportive with your eating. And I think just getting this information out to people is going to be so important. I, I, my biggest encouragement is um, really always thinking about, you know, what is one next step that mm -hmm. somebody can take to better support themselves with food. And maybe that is just getting into a regular meal pattern or snack pattern that's going to work for them and feeling more reassured around their eating. Maybe it's just allowing themselves to have permission to eat foods that they enjoy in satisfying amounts and putting those foods together that are rewarding and nourishing. Um, maybe it's just recognizing the influences that have been going on for them and where they need to move away from externally regulated eating, like yeah. food rules, portion control, dieting to a place of internally regulated eating and trusting their hunger, appetite, and satiety to guide them in food selection and eating patterns and that type of thing. So um, I think it's just a matter of shifting and reframing. And it's really, really important for the for a sustainable practice and, and positive eating behaviors in the long term. So I'm just, I'm just happy to discuss it. And of course, people, I'm happy to be a resource if needed. And I would just say too, um, the Ellen Satter Institute is a, a great resource for finding out more information about the Satter eating competence model. Um, Satter also has a model specific to feeding children called the feeding dynamics model. And it talks about this division of responsibility when you're feeding children, which maybe people would be interested in that as well, because starts at a young age, right? Our influence in yes. terms of what people, how people feed children. And um, if somebody has concerns about eating, sometimes that gets played out in that dynamic. So we want to make sure people are aware of that. And I would also encourage people to check out the Association for Size, Diversity, and Health and this idea of health at every size. If they've never heard of it before, they might have some preconceived notions as to what that is. But reading through those different um, pillars and that type of thing to really understand what it's about and, and, um, really supporting being in a, in a, being able to counter some of the, the diet messages, the diet culture and the weight stigma that we are so exposed to mm -hmm. can be hard, very, very hard. And so I just think being able to stay steady as a competent eater in a world that kind of seems like it's constantly countering or making us distrust can be really challenging. So, so really looking to those resources that are going to give you solid evidence and information and truth is, is critical. And as you mentioned before, just those credible, reliable 
resources mm-hmm. and things that we can look to because it's all around us every day. And the last thing I want to say is um, I heard this quote recently by a woman. Um, her name's Tammy Beasley. She's a certified eating disorder registered dietitian. She said that our body is not nearly as judgmental about our eating as we are. And I just loved that quote. I just thought that really kind of sums it up that too often we get so wrapped up in the, again, the judgment that we're placing on our eating behavior, food selection, all of this stuff. And it's like, our body is okay with it all. (laughs) You know, it's just, maybe we, we just need to settle down about it a little bit. And, and the other thing I really um, appreciate that, you know, Ellen Satter, one of her quotes is that, um, when, when the joy goes out of eating nutrition suffers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's another thing to really think about is when we stop eating the foods we enjoy or try to eat in such a way that it's not enjoyable anymore, our, our nutrition and that adequacy and that um, quality is going to suffer for that. And so I think we can have it both. We can take good care of ourselves with food, support our nutritional needs, and yet enjoy our food and eating and not be so judgmental towards it. So just kind of taking that as a couple takeaways and, and really assessing that for individuals, I think is really important. Oh, perfectly said. I couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> I, well, it's, yeah, it's been great. And, and please let me know if you have any other questions, um, happy mm-hmm. to answer those. Or if you, if you have follow-ups from individuals who want to learn more, I think it's just great. You're doing this. Yes, I will definitely like if this, if we can get this out, um, make sure that you are, I will put all of like your contact information for other people who maybe like need to reach out or didn't know that you were available. I think that that's kind of like why I wanted to do something like this, especially with um, like MSU professors or like Pete or somebody like you who actually offer services like um, not a lot of people know about these services and even know that I'm pretty sure they're free, right? Or yes, yes. So, nutrition counseling. Yes. It's free of charge. So, I mean, I think that not a lot of people know about this. So I think that being able to kind of get that out is something that is also very important along with kind of, um, being able to educate yourself on nutrition. So, Agreed. so yes, thank you so much for coming. I, I'm really happy and so excited about this. And I, I just really hope that people got some good information and are happy to listen to you. (laughs) Yeah, me too. I think, thank you so much for inviting me to come just talk about this. It's, it's an important subject. It's an important topic. It's, it's on a lot of people's minds. People have a lot of questions about this. And I think a lot of people are trying to navigate this and, and figure out what next steps to take. So being able to point individuals in a, in a direction that's going to be helpful and supportive and supported by the research is so key. And having a platform to be able to do that is so great. So thank you so much. It's been such a pleasure. All right, I'm gonna stop this. So I just wanted to come on and end this. I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode. You got a lot of good information from Annie. Thank you again to her for coming and being such an amazing guest, being my first guest too. It was such an amazing experience kind of learning how to do this. I know that she was learning too. Um, So again, thank you. And I hope you guys really enjoyed this. 
I just wanted to reiterate again that um, Annie does help with MSU students and faculty. So if you are part of that group, feel free to reach out to her and ask any questions that you have. But other than that, I really hope you guys enjoyed it and I cannot wait for the next episode. Hopefully I will be able to answer some more questions and get some more information out to you guys.